Let's pray again together. Father, we're so grateful to be gathered in this place with your people to worship you. Father, I pray now for the help of your spirit. Would your spirit come now and help me preach your word? Would your spirit come now and help us receive your word? Father, we need to hear from you. We need your loving kindness here this morning. Would you come and minister to us now through the power of the spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the gospel, in a a nutshell, is that the Father has sent his Son to take on a body so that we could take on his Spirit. And we have received the Spirit so that we can forever be united to Jesus' crucified and risen body and know the love of God the Father. The Holy Spirit is really not ever an added bonus in God's redemptive work like often we can think about in the church. We simply are not Christians without the work of the Spirit for all of us. The work of the Spirit in each of our lives is just as essential as the Father sending the Son, or the Son dying and rising again. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the truth that the Holy Spirit truly is the Lord and giver of life. And we're going to talk about why that is supremely good news for us. Last week, I mentioned three things about the work of the Spirit in the life of every believer. And today, we're going to look again at the work of the Spirit and talk more again. We're going to mention two more things the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Two truths that Paul tells us about the life of every single Christian who participates in the life of God through the work of the Spirit. All right, so last week I preached on Romans 8, and today we're going to pick right back up in this passage in Romans 8 that I really love. So very quickly, let's recap what Paul has said uh, before our passage we read today. We said last week Paul essentially says in the first few verses of Romans 8, their lives have been completely changed because of the judgment that God has rendered over us because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Every single Christian, every day of our lives, has this glorious verdict of no condemnation over our lives because of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and his resurrection. Because Jesus has fully and forever absorbed God's just judgment that our sins deserve, we now have the infinite love and favor of the living God over us. And not only that, But God the Spirit has taken up his residence in our lives. And he's in the midst of transforming us into God's new creation. His renewed humanity who will be the vehicle through which God will make his glory known throughout all this earth. And so Paul in our passage, he effortlessly moves from talking about what God has done for us in Jesus' death and resurrection to what the Holy Spirit is doing in us through his life-giving, life-transforming work. Starting at the end of verse 4, Paul begins to mention that the life of the Christian, every Christian, is dominated and led by the work of the Spirit. He mentions that we as Christians, we walk according to the Spirit, which is another way of saying that our lives and our thoughts and our actions, etc., they're all led and governed, not by your sin, but by the work of the Spirit. We said last time the contrast that Paul's going to make in most of verses 4 through 11 is between believers and unbelievers. When he says that believers are not in the flesh, but they are in the spirit. We said last time, and it's worth saying again, 
that the good news of the gospel is not only that all of your sins have been forgiven in Jesus, but that now you are someone who is not defined and controlled by your sin. Instead, you're someone who's defined and controlled by the work of God in your life. We said this last time, and it's, it's so important we have to say it again. The most important part of who you are truly is not something sinful. It's not something broken. It's the person you are becoming by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in your life. This means lots of things for us, but it certainly means that the crippling shame and self-loathing that we so often feel because of our sins, this is not a sign of God's work in us. Satan and evil are the ones who work hard to make you feel condemned. The Spirit is the one who instead wants you to see who you truly are. Someone who's forgiven and loved in Jesus. Someone who's defined, again, by God's redemptive work, not by your sin. So all that is leading up to the passage we just read uh, this morning a few minutes ago. Today we're looking at verses 12 through 17. Let's jump into what we just read uh, just a few minutes ago. So the first thing about the work of the Spirit that we see is that we participate in the killing work of the Spirit. We participate in the killing work of the Spirit. Look again what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, so Paul begins by telling us that we are now debtors, but we're not debtors to our sinful flesh. He doesn't spell this out, but what he does is he implies that instead of being debtors to our sin, now we're debtors to God because of what he's done for us in Jesus and through the Spirit. God has decisively dealt with the just guilt of sin. He's graciously declared us righteous in his sight because we receive by faith Jesus' free gift of righteousness that we own ourselves when we're united to him. And God has set us free now from the slave master of sin through Jesus' death and resurrection. God's second Adam, the one who's come to fulfill God's promises made to our first parents long ago about he will one day send a seed of the woman who will finally and forever crush the head of Satan. And so as the great hymn says, we are a debtor to mercy alone. We owe everything we have to the living God. And so Paul wants us to see that we owe everything to God. We owe nothing to our sin. Sin's only gift to us has been the cruel gift of death. And it has no power, no authority over us anymore, again, because we've already been set free in Jesus. We owe no allegiance to it. and We must now see it as a mortal enemy that we're called to fight throughout our entire lives through the help of the Spirit. I've had the privilege of getting to know a variety of people over the years as I've been able to do ministry. And one of the groups of people that I really have learned a lot from, that I, I like uh, learning from, are people who've gone through an addiction of some kind, and they've gone through it, and they're in the process of recovery now. If you talk to people who have been able to escape the jaws of addiction, you'll often hear a common refrain. They'll say some of the similar things when you hear their stories. 
people I know who've been able to leave behind an addiction are those who really begin to see their addiction as a, a lifelong kill or be killed situation. What leads addicts to recovery is when they begin to see that the choice before them is really clear. Either they stay in addiction and they die, or they leave it behind and they live. And that mindset is really the same thing God wants us to have about our sin. He wants to see and live like sin is out to kill you, and you will either kill it through the help of the Spirit, or you will be killed. This is basically the thrust of what Paul is saying in verse 13 when he says, look, there's only really two ways to live life. Either according to your sinful flesh, which leads to death, or a life devoted to killing sin through the power of the Spirit, which leads to eternal life. What Paul says here in verse 13 about putting our sin to death by the Spirit, this is really just part of a larger picture of the Scripture's teaching about what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of God's people. You can read throughout the scriptures, you can see that one of the main roles of the Spirit is to empower God's people to take decisive action in order to fight God's enemies. You can see this throughout the Old Testament. You read books like the book of Judges. You can see how the Spirit rushes on men like Gideon and Samson. And when the Spirit comes, now they're empowered to kill. They're empowered to fight their enemies, people like the Midianites and the Philistines. In the New Testament, you can see the Spirit being present with Jesus as he's led into the wilderness. The Gospel say he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit to do battle with Satan and the various temptations that are going to come his way. So upon our passage, he says, again, if you live according to the flesh, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What Paul mentions here are these incredibly high stakes, right? It's very clear that it's life or death in fighting our sin. And we know that he has to mean something other than just bodily life or death, right? Because the statement wouldn't make any sense otherwise. His conditional statement doesn't make sense if it just refers to your body's dying because everyone on earth is going to die, whether you live according to the flesh or whether you live according to the spirit. And so the death that Paul warns will come to all those who live according to the flesh. It must refer to something even deeper, something bigger than physical death, the living death of being under the judgment of God. This is a death that some people experience in part right now in the present, but later they will experience it in full when they leave this life. But the alternative to undergoing this death is putting to death our sin through the power of the Spirit. So another way of saying all this is that a spiritual death of some kind is inevitable for every human being. The question is, what kind of death do you want to experience? We can follow the path of death promoted by evil, where paradoxically we live, but we live according to the flesh, and we follow its impulses and desires. And of course, in the moment when you live this way, it doesn't feel like death, does it? Instead, it may feel like life. We sin every time because in the moment we are deceived as to what is death and what is life. Every sin you can fall into, whether it's fleshly anger or lust or anything else, offers us some counterfeit form of life that on some level is going to satisfy you. It's going to feel good in the moment. 
But in these moments, again, we've confused death with life. And the truth is that devoting yourself to this kind of deceptive life is going to lead us to being banished from God's love instead of putting ourselves under the killing work of the Spirit, which leads us to life. And of course, by the grace of God, Paul says you can choose another way of dying. You can choose another kind of death, a death where we willingly put ourselves under the knife of the Holy Spirit and we repeatedly die to sin. This kind of death often, it's not going to feel good. But God promises us that this kind of death actually is good. And it's going to lead you to life. This is the death that comes with the purging fire of God's work of sanctification that will happen throughout our entire Christian lives. This kind of death looks like repeatedly saying no to our sinful appetites. Something which, again, in so many moments in our lives doesn't feel like life. It may feel more like death. Seeking to continually put to death our sin throughout a lifetime, this is really part of God's call to embrace the path of the cross, of struggle, of suffering. And we must be honest about the fact that resisting temptation over and over again, that's painful. That's hard. It's painful to have to persist in denying ourselves the desires of our flesh, a process that, again, will feel like death so much more than life often. But do you hear what Paul is saying? He's promising us that at the end of this painful process of transformation, God promises us life. And not just physical, bodily life, although it certainly includes that, but eternal life. A life where we have the infinite love and favor of God on us as beloved children, as family, and the never-ending presence of God Almighty. So again, people of God, the question we have to face is this. What kind of death do we want to die? A death that promises life and only leads us to the worst kind of death imaginable, or death that requires we die to things that feel good but promises and delivers to us the life you really want, the life you are longing for, the life where you will be in our eternal home with God and his people in a place where you will never again feel the effects of sin and suffering. We also have to see again the incredible stakes, right, that Paul mentions here in verse 13. We've already mentioned this. Paul says in verse 13, if you devote ourselves to a sinful flesh, you'll die. But if you put it to death by the Spirit, you'll live. And the stakes just couldn't get any higher than that, right? It's either eternal death or eternal life. That's about as heavy as it gets. And as good Presbyterians, we rightly believe our eternal security is resting in God's sovereign hands. This might rub us the wrong way. This might look confusing. We might think if God has predestined his people to eternal life, how can Paul basically say to us that if you don't kill sin by the Spirit, then you're going to be eternally condemned? Isn't that more or less salvation by works? Well, the gospel no doubt gives us glorious promises of the security of our eternal salvation graciously given to us in Jesus. You can just skip down a few verses in Romans and see these incredible promises of our assurance of salvation. A few verses later in verse 30, Paul's going to say in Romans 8, that those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
few verses later, in verses 38 and 39, we read one of God's most overwhelmingly comforting promises in all the Bible. That nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. But we have to see that the Bible describes our salvation from more than just one perspective. There are plenty of places that describe the promise of our eternal security that rests in the hands of our faithful God. But the Bible also clearly describes our salvation as a journey from point A to point B. The Christian life is described often as a great struggle, a race that you must run all the way to the finish line. You can see this again from Paul in in 2 Timothy. We think Paul writes this near the very end of his life. He writes to Timothy saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Right, People of faith from Christian history, they've picked up on this fact. People like the English pastor John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, a book that describes the Christian faith as this lifelong journey to the celestial city. A journey where the protagonist Christian must fight all kinds of battles. He has all kinds of struggles with sin and evil in order to arrive at his heavenly destination. And Bunyan's allegory of the Christian life, it's thoroughly biblical. Many parts of scripture tell us an essential part of our journey to our eternal destination involves us regularly fighting Satan and sin. Jesus says something very similar to what Paul says in our passage today in Romans 8. In the Gospels, you remember figuratively, he says in our fight with sin, you've got to be willing to cut off your hands or tear out your eyes rather than be thrown into the fire of hell fully intact. If you read the book of Revelation on multiple occasions, you read that the promise of God's eternal life is held out only to those who are willing to conquer the power of Satan and sin. And so while we tenaciously cling to Jesus' promise that we will never perish and no one will ever snatch us out of his hand, we also know that this promise of salvation will only be realized in those who persevere in their fight against sin and evil. And so it's clear in the scriptures that God's promise of salvation, graciously given to sinners, it always comes with a command to be deadly serious in our fight against Satan and sin. The Bible never makes us choose between either your eternal security or your responsibility to take sin seriously in your life and to do everything in your power through the help of the Spirit to wage war against it, to resist it, to fight it. Another way of saying this maybe is obeying God's commands to fight sin, it doesn't earn us our salvation. Rather, obeying God's commands and fighting our sin is the path that you must follow to get to eternal life. People of God, there is no other path that will lead us to our eternal home. Before we move on, I wanted to give some practical advice on what it might look like for Christians to put to death sin in our lives. Paul says that we have to kill sin through the power of the Spirit, but he doesn't really elaborate on the specifics of that. So I want to think just a minute or two about what would that look like. If you zoom out from our passage and you think about what the Scriptures say as a whole about fighting Sin and temptation, you can see at least two strategies. So let's quickly look at these two strategies about what does it look like to put sin to death. We mentioned earlier that the Spirit propels us to act. And these strategies are are both decisively about action, right? About moving in a particular direction, either away from temptation or just facing it head on in order to fight it. 
Okay, so the first strategy you can see when you think about the whole Bible and what it says about fighting sin is that we're to flee. You're to run away from temptation. We only empower our flesh whenever we give in to its demands. So fleeing from it is one way you fight it and you starve its influence in your own heart. You see the strategy throughout the scriptures. Think about in the book of Genesis when Joseph runs away from Potiphar's wife in order to avoid her sexually sinful advances. You can think about the book of Proverbs, the wise father. He warns his son to not even go near the door of the house of the adulteress. Paul in the New Testament is going to command Christians to flee sexual morality, flee idolatry. He says in another, one of his letters, flee youthful passions. Another way to think about the strategy of fleeing is for us to avoid places and situations where you know ahead of time evil is going to come really close to me here and he's going to make it really hard. Fleeing is not cowardice. It's about having the wisdom to know when you should stand and fight and when you should run because you know that you're going to get slaughtered if you get close enough to your enemy. So again, practically, for most of us men, this should probably look like putting some kind of boundaries, some kind of guardrails on your access to the Internet so that you make war against pornography. In marriage, this could look like your ability to take a break in the midst of a very heated conflict with your spouse where you know that you're so angry and you're so hurt that you're almost certain you're going to say something that's going to deliberately try to harm your spouse. Husbands and wives, we always have to have an exit out of every conflict so you can you cool off and you come back again to address the problem later. That's fleeing sin and temptation in a really wise way. The strategy of fleeing temptation and sin, it may sound easy, but we know that this is really hard, right? Because it requires a mature humility. It requires enough sanctified self-awareness to know where you are weak, where you are vulnerable. Some of the most important battles with sin that you will win are the ones where you will never show up the battlefield to fight. Because you know that if you put yourself in this particular situation when you're already weak in these particular ways, you're almost certainly going to lose. Okay, so we're called to flee sin, flee temptation. The second strategy you see in the scriptures is direct combat. This is what you see Jesus do when we're tempted, uh, when he's tempted in the wilderness by Satan. So you can read that passage in the Gospels and see the strategy involves being able to identify particular lies that Satan is always presenting you with the sins you are tempted with. And then you trust God's truth in order to disarm the power of the lie. Again, think about what Jesus does and how he does this. When Satan comes to him multiple occasions to tempt him in various ways, he proclaims the truth of God's word to every temptation that Satan puts before him. Satan in the scriptures, he's repeatedly referred referred to as a liar, as a deceiver, And we need to think carefully about why that is. You can see this play out in every instance in the Bible, because almost in every part of the Bible, when Satan comes near, the first thing he does, he lies. Think about how Satan made his presence known to our first parents. He lied to them. He lied to them about the consequences of sin, telling them sin would not lead to death. It would make them like God. He lied to them about God's motives and withholding the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, making God out to be someone who is stingy and withholding something good from them. You can see the strategy behind every single sin that you face in your life. 
Lust sells you a lie about where your heart will find true satisfaction in your desires for connection. Sinful anger presents you a lie about who's the infallible judge whenever you feel like you've been wronged by someone else. And you could do this kind of thing with every single sin you face. So people of God, if you want to kill off sin by the power of the Spirit, think about the lies. To discern the lies that are always a part of the temptation of when Satan and evil come near. And in the power of the Spirit, you speak the truth to the lie in order to kill the power of sin in that moment. Before we move on to our final point today, one more thing I want to see about killing sin is just how hard it is to actually do this, right? It's so hard to live with this kind of mindset in the world that we live in. Because as we all know, we, we don't live in a world that is apathetic about sin. No, it's increasingly zealous to produce it and promote it. The world is filled with people who are inventors of evils, Paul says in Romans 1. The Bible tells God's people to abstain from sexual morality. But we live in a world where pornography makes billions of dollars every single year. Jesus tells us to love our enemies. But we live in a world where hating your enemies isn't really frowned on, is it? Instead, it's one of the best ways to rally your base. It could be a great way to ensure you get elected to public office. We have to be clear about the fact that more and more cultural icons, people who are considered cool and influential, are people who work hard to glorify things that God would say, that's evil. And so if you take seriously God's words to fight the very thing our society defends, then this will increasingly make us an enemy of the world. And with sober eyes, we must be willing to count the cost of this and be willing to endure scorn and opposition for this. Young people, I want you especially to hear me say this, that taking the power of sin seriously in your life, it will never make you someone who is popular in the eyes of the world. At best, it's going to make you the punchline for people's jokes. And at worst, it's going to produce scorn and outright opposition from some people who want to make your life difficult and hard. Okay, let's move on now. Let's talk about uh, one final thing we see in our passage about the work of the Holy Spirit. Look now at verses 14 through 17. These verses, Paul tells us that we are assured that we belong to God through the Spirit. We're assured that we belong to God through the Spirit. I could spend an entire sermon just on these verses, uh, but for the sake of time, let's quickly look at a few things here. Look at what Paul says. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children than heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. All right, so we could summarize all this by saying that the spirit tells us who we truly are. We will discover our true identity only through our relationship with God, specifically in the work of the Holy Spirit. And what our passage tells us is one of the sweetest parts of the good news of the gospel, that sinful people, by the grace of God, are welcomed into God's family as beloved adopted sons and daughters of God. 
And there's a crucial link here between what Paul says in these verses and what he's just said about putting sin to death in verses 12 through 13. Verses 14 through 17 assure us of who we are so that now we can be empowered to devote our lives to killing sin, as Paul mentioned in verse 13. One of our greatest motivators in fighting sin comes from the fact of who you are, that you're a child of God. You're an heir of God. You're a co-heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have the infinite love and favor of God surrounding you like a shield, we're now ready to rush into the front lines in our holy war against Satan and sin. And nothing in our battle with sin could ever change who we truly are as sons and daughters of the living God. So what Paul does throughout these verses, he links the work of the Spirit with the fact of our adoption into God's family as his beloved children. He tells us in verse 14 that if the Holy Spirit leads and defines our lives, something which of course is true for every Christian, then we can be assured that we are true children of the living God. Paul continues on in verse 15 by again assuring us that we have not received a spirit that is dominated by fear, but instead we received the Holy Spirit, the one whom Paul calls the spirit of adoption as sons. Paul's saying that because we were not in the flesh but in the spirit, we're not slaves to fear, but instead we belong to the spirit who assures us of our place in God's family. This tells us that slavery to fear is a good way to summarize life in the flesh, life apart from Christ. And that should grab our attention, considering just how much time our culture currently devotes to nurturing so much fear in so many places of our lives. From pandemics to politics, our surrounding culture has been working overtime, right, throughout 2020, to pump a nonstop stream of fear into your heart. But what Paul is telling is that the work of the Spirit in our lives is the precise opposite of fear. The Spirit brings us life and peace, as Paul said earlier in verse 6 in Romans 8. The Spirit brings us peace because he's constantly confirming our place in the family of God, telling us that because God is our Father and we're united to Jesus, ultimately everything really will be okay. Paul says that it's through the work of the Spirit that we are given the assurance that we can cry out to God as our Father and know that He loves us and cares for us. Paul mentions this address of Abba, Father, that the Spirit enables us to cry out with. This address of Abba, Father, that the Spirit gives us, this matches actually Jesus' own prayer that he prays. If you remember back to the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark's Gospel, this is Jesus' prayer that we are now empowered to pray. So what Paul's telling us is something that should really stun us when we let in the gravity of what he's saying. That we as God's children get to address God the Father in the same way that Jesus himself addresses his own Father. He's saying that we have access through the Spirit to the same love, the same intimacy with God the Father that Jesus himself has. And so this is one of the most important truths of the Christian life. No matter how deep the pain, no matter how deep the struggles of life, God is our good, gracious Father who delights in us. That just as Jesus receives the divine affirmation of his Father's pleasure, so we too have the affirming pleasure of God on us because of Christ. 
And the Holy Spirit is God's holy preacher who preaches to us the life-giving truth about how the love of God, it's been poured into your heart because of what he's done. He tells us that we've been brought into the eternal loving union of the Father, Son, and Spirit, that we are in God in a way that reflects how the Father himself is in the Son and how the Son is in the Father. And the Spirit assures us that this is always true for you. People of God, it's true for you on your best days. It's true for you on your worst days. It's true for you on the days when you feel like God is near. It's true for you on the days when you feel utterly alone. People of God, there's many things in our lives that shape our identities as human beings. We can think about how our earthly parents and our families have such a huge role in shaping who you are. Our life experiences, our inborn personalities, our struggles with sin and suffering, all these things shape who you are as a human being. In my ministry with people, I regularly hear stories of ways that people were harmed as children and damaged in such profound ways that they will likely feel the effects of it for throughout their lives. The voice of Satan and evil that you hear in your own heart, it also has plenty to say, doesn't it, about who you are? The voice you hear in your crippling guilt, your crippling shame, is a voice that doesn't just say that you've done things. It's a voice that wants you to believe particular lies about who you are. The voice of evil wants you to believe that you are a hopeless failure. You will never change. You are a slave to sin. You're someone who is despicable, someone who is unlovable, someone who is cut off from the love and grace of God. But one of the most important truths we see in our passage, a truth that has the power to deeply transform who we are is the truth that God alone has the power to determine who you are as a human being. God has the greatest power to form and shape who we are in his work of creation and recreation. And his power to determine our identities, it's going to go even deeper than the far-lasting influence of your families. It's going to go deeper than the pain of your past or the pain of your present. Who God determines Who we are goes deeper than each of your unique personalities. And again, the beauty and wonder of the identity that we find only in our relationship with God is the truth about who you are, that you are a beloved child of God because of God's gift of grace given to you in Jesus. This is the truth about who you are that Paul says the Holy Spirit is constantly telling you, bearing witness to you about. People of God, who and what will you trust in order to know who you are? Will you believe the infallible, unchangeable voice of the Holy Spirit? Or will you look to someone or something else in order to answer one of the most foundational and vitally important questions anyone could ever ask? This question of who am I? People of God, do you believe the truth about who you are in the gospel? That sinful people like you and I could become beloved children in a household that is ruled by the God of love. Do you see that the love and delight you have in your own children is just a tiny, small, faint picture of the love and delight that you have from God the Father as a child in his family? Do you believe the truth about who God says you are, that despite your failures, despite your sins, you're an heir in God's house, you're a co-heir with the Lord Jesus himself? It will always be true for you. It is too good to not be true.
Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the work of the Spirit in our lives. Father, would you continue to pour out your loving kindness on us through the Spirit? Would you continue to commune with us and feed us this morning? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.